we are in Proverbs chapter 3, talking about wisdom. And as we talked about last week, we are in a world just filled with information. I mean, we can Google anything, so much so that Google has become part of, uh, because a, a verb. Google it. Just go Google it. Even with my kids. My kids ask me a question. Daddy, why is the sky blue? I don't know. Google it. <laughs> I didn't have that as a child. My mom just said, God did it. And that was it. And I was all good with that. I, I totally got all of that. And it's amazing, though, how, how time, we have all this information, but we don't know how to sift it. We don't know how to interpret all this information. And then we don't know which information to trust. I mean, have you ever found yourself going to a website and it says, this is not a safe site? And it comes up and it's hazardous to your computer. And, and even then, it could be safe, but we don't know if the information there is correct. Just last night, I was trying to change uh, my daughter's uh, tire, her inner tube on her tire. And, and it's been so many years since I've changed an inner tube on a tire that I'm like, well, look up a YouTube video of it. So I look up a YouTube video of it. And what do I do? I puncture the inner tube watching this guy's video. And my wife walks up in the very most loving way possible. and goes, here's another site of someone. It's, yeah, it's changing tire for moron fathers. This is for you. She didn't quite say it that way, but it helped me then. Because we, we need to know that there are some things that we just can't trust. I think of the, the story that happened in April of 2012. I don't know if you heard this or not. But 900 high school students received an admission letter from, from UCLA, University of California in Los, uh, Los Angeles, that they had been adm- admitted into this very selective university for the fall semester. And the students were overjoyed, excited. I got into this, this wonderful school. And then they received a message right after it said, Sorry, it was our mistake. My bad. You're not actually admitted. <laughs> How would you feel if that happened to you? Or maybe it's something like that has happened to you, where someone said one thing and then it hap- you, you got the, total, the rug pulled out from you, and you, you just have these trust issues. I mean, how many of us have trust issues? Do you have trust issues? I have trust issues. I, I, I mean, have you ever done one of those free fall things? You ever done, like when you're, you have a group of people and you're supposed to fall back in them? You know, my favorite one, there was a Chicago Bears player who was doing that with all these kids, and he falls back, and they just move, and he hits the ground. <laughs> and, and I think about that for many of us. We have trust issues. I mean, there are so many things that we have been betrayed by or we have learned about that have caused us to not trust. I mean, we hear about school or, or uh, school teachers, or we've heard about um, political figures, or someone failing morally, or, or doing something where they, they stole a lot of money, or whatever it might be. We all have trust issues. It, but it's amazing, no matter how much information we have in our world, no matter how many things are around us, the Bible says that there is one person we can always go to, to tr- that will always be faithful, and that is God. God will always remain faithful to his promises. He has spoken to us through his word. He shows us how to live and act, and we can trust his word. No matter what harm may come, no matter what circumstances might fly at us, we have an anchor in the midst of the storm that can keep us just totally safe and secure the way that God desires us to be, and that's by trusting in him. But what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? I mean, we can say that. I mean, undoubtedly, many of us say that. I trust in God. But yet, when circumstances come, eh, that, finds, that, that helps us to learn really quick who it is and what it is we really trust in. So today, we're going to look at what trusting in God looks like, 
how we can trust in God, and the benefits of trusting in God. Because God lays it out within his word, especially within this passage, we're going to see five admonitions, five things that God says that we are to trust in him, and five things that will, the byproduct of trusting in him will result in these blessings that we will receive if we truly place our faith and trust in him. But before we go any further, let's pause for a moment and ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, I I come before you asking you to speak to us. Lord, we are are surrounded, drowning with information. But Lord, we need wisdom. We need transformation and know how to apply it. We need to know that which transcends time, knowing that you alone are trustworthy. Lord, we do have a hard time trusting in you. Uh, we, we, We have a hard time letting go. Lord, please... Help us to see how we can trust in you, what that looks like in our daily lives. Lord, and we're coming before you honestly, giving you all of our struggles, all of our trials, all of our troubles, all of the difficulties that face us day in and day out, the stresses that seem to assail us at every corner. Lord, we lay them at your feet today, saying and asking you to help us to trust in you with these things. We give them to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's jump right in to our text for today. We are going to begin in verse 1. The, now that, remember, the author of this is Solomon, uh, the wisest man to have ever lived. He wrote some 3,000 proverbs and about 1,000 songs. He was divinely gifted by God uh, with wisdom to d- lead uh, the people of God. He is known as the wisest man to have, have lived. Um, and a few books in the Bible are written by him, of which Proverbs is one. Now, he is not the only author of Proverbs. He compiled, and there have been some compilations of other Proverbs that have come in from different individuals that God, they are God-breathed out. But today we're going to focus right on these ten verses. So it begins, My son, do not forget my teaching, but... Let your heart keep my commandments. Now, the first admonition is for a father. He's, he's speaking as a father to his son, and he's saying, please keep what I have taught you. Now, the word for teaching here in Hebrew is Torah. And it's the idea when it's unqualified that it's referring to God's law. This, this God's law, especially this Old Testament wisdom, and here it's this first five books of the Bible that he's speaking about. Now, that's when it's qualified. Here it is, it's not, or excuse me, that's when it's unqualified. When it's qualified here, as in my teaching, he's referring to the book of Proverbs generally. Now, I think that we can extend that further into the entirety of Scripture, because God is the divine author giving his word unto us how we might live and conduct and uh, live our lives on a daily basis. He says, do not forget my teaching, meaning I have taught you. Now, first thing we can see here is that this father is teaching his child, and parents, we see that our responsibility is to teach our children the things of God. We are to be the model of that. We are to be teaching that and passing that on to the next generation. And in order for us to do that, that requires us first knowing it. We have to know what the Bible says before we can teach it to others. We can't pass that responsibility on to the church. And and what is the responsibility of the church for pastors and leaders? The Bible says that our responsibility as elders and leaders of the church are to train you to do the works of ministry, to equip you to do the ministry. And part of that is training your children in the way they should go. But we have to know this ourselves. We can't, again, just pass it off. 
So for us to know this ourselves requires us treasuring God's commandments. That's the first point I want you to write down within your notes. We are to be treasuring His commandments. Do not forget my teaching. Don't forget it. Apply it to your life. Now let me ask you, what do you live by? What directs your life? What is your authority? Now we all have Something that we live our life by. Something that was either passed on to us, something we learned in school, something we see on, uh, in the media. We all conduct our life by some type of moral compass. But our compass by itself is marred. Is marred. It is debased. We are made in the image of God, but we are fallen creatures. And it's God's word and his spirit that help correct and direct our compass and reset it, if you will to put us back on God. We have to be, make sure that we are treasuring God's commands and letting these commands direct our life. But how do we do that? Well, I have a few different points for that. First of all, it requires studying the Bible daily. It appalls me that the Bible can gather dust in our lives because the Word of God is, I mean, we don't understand what have, people have done in order to get the Word of God. People that have crossed lands have gone through great suffering and persecution to get that Bible in their hand. And we just take it for granted and let it gather dust. But it's God's love letter to us. He's speaking to us through this. And we need to study the Word of God to find out what it says. And then after we study it, though, it's not just enough reading it. And I understand we all have different reading abilities, and and we have things that we don't understand in it. That's why I tell people, start in the New Testament, preferably in the book of Mark, or read James. These aren't long books. And you can look it up in the table of contents. Not all of us are born Bible scholars or Bible students. It's okay to ask questions and to, to not know what things mean and to find out what they mean. But spend that time studying the Word of God, and then after you study it, here's what you do next. Apply it. Apply these commands diligently to your life. We have to apply them. Now look at verse, uh, it's interesting, look at verse 2. For length of days and years of life and peace that will be added to you. I mean, we have a promise that's right here that you should be doing this because God's going to bless tremendously. It's amazing how important the Bible is, and it's amazing to me how many laws we have in our land today. You know, it's interesting, in talking to uh, some of our refugees that are new to this country, um, we asked them the question, you know, what's the biggest difference between living in the land that you lived in and coming here? They said there's so many rules. We have a lot of rules that are here. And we have all of these different laws on the books. And you know we have 35 million laws or something like that, and they all basically just are summed up in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> they all go back to that. If you think about it, it's about how to interact with God and how to interact with man. And if we got those basics taken care of, the other things to take care of itself. We need to learn how to apply it, not just know it. Again, we know a lot of information. We can sprout it back. But it means application, and application leads to transformation. It leads to transforming our lives. I'm reminded of this story. I don't know if you've heard of this or not. It's a story called Mutiny uh, on the Bounty. It's actually a true story. And it's, it ta- it's a story that took place... Um, on a boat called the Bounty, which took place uh, as this boat was leaving England in 1787, and it was bound for the South Seas. 
Now, it's interesting about this. The, the idea for this trip was that those aboard would spend some time among the islands. They would be transplanting fruit-bearing and food-bearing trees and doing other things to make these land, islands uh, more inhabitable, or more habitable, excuse me. And after 10 months of, on the voyage, the bounty arrived safely at its destination. And for six months, the officers and the crew gave themselves to the duties placed upon them by their government. So they did their job. But when the special task was completed and the order came to leave again, they didn't want to go because they had formed strong attachments to the native girls and the climate and the ease of the South Sea Island life was much to their liking. So the result was mutiny. They mutinied on this boat, the bounty, and the sailors placed the captain, Bly, and a few loyal men adrift in an open boat. Captain Bly, in an almost miraculous fashion, ended up surviving this ordeal after being at sea for some 40-some days. He was rescued, eventually arrived home in London to tell his story. And that led to another expedition, which was launched to go find these mutineers and, in due time, uh, capture them and punish them. Well, 14 of them were captured and paid the penalty under British law. But nine of them had gone to another distant island. There they formed a colony. They learned to distill whiskey from a native plant, and the whiskey, as usual, along with many other habits, led to their ruin. Disease and murder took the lives of all the native men and all but one of the white men named Alexander Smith. Now, he found himself the only man on an island surrounded by a crowd of women and these children of mixed ancestry. He found a Bible among the possessions of a dead soldier. The book was new to him, and he'd never read it before. He sat down and read it through. He believed it, and he began to appropriate it and apply it. He wanted others to share in the benefits of this book, so he taught classes to the women and the children. So he read to them and taught them the scriptures. And it was 20 years, 20 years, before a ship ever found that island. And when it did, they found a miniature utopia. People were living in decency, prosperity, harmony, and peace. There was nothing of crime, disease, immorality, insanity, or illiteracy. How was it accomplished? By the reading and believing and the appropriating the truth of God. Horace Greeley, uh, the newspaper, great newspaper editor and abolitionist in the 19th century, he said, once said this, It is impossible to enslave mentally or socially a Bible-reading people. The principles of the Bible are the groundwork of human freedom. See, that's what happened to Alexander Smith and his colony. See, what happens when we apply God's word? It results in God blessing us tremendously. God blessing us tremendously. God blesses us. When we correctly apply God's word, we are blessed beyond belief. We avoid the pitfalls and consequences of sin, and we live in the, in the peace God affords us. Now let's go back to the, our text. Look at verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Now let's look at this word steadfast love and faithfulness for a moment. The idea here is truth and loyalty. In fact, the Hebrew word here is chesed. Now, I've got a Bible scholar in the, in the midst there. Is that right, Joel? Is that chesed? Am I right? All right, I've got to say it correctly, even though I'm spitting all over the place. But it's chesed, and it summarizes faithfulness and godliness in contrast to the selfish malice and infidelity of the wicked. That we're not to be like the wicked that are around us. The son should make them, this chesed, his... Uh, Part of his character, permanent characteristics of his life. 
So the idea is he's to bang them around his neck. It's the understanding of, of placing it in one's life and living by it. In other words, it's cultivating godly character. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. And we are to be cultivating godly character. Now, character is not something that's very popular today. Matter of fact, it's becoming increasingly rare in our society, even in churches, even among pastors. People are too busy trying to get money and fame, but they're fleeting. As Horace Greeley uh, said, as I just mentioned his name, he said, fame is a vapor, popularity is an accident. Riches take wing, and only character endures. Very, very true. Very true. Character is the only thing that does endure. It is where biblical conviction meets experience, and the only way it can be truly formed is by adhering to his word and communing with him. And for us to do that requires us firming up our disciplines. Firming up our disciplines. Now, I use the word discipline there. It's a, it's a means of training, of getting into shape. And, and we understand how hard it is to get in physical shape. Is it hard? I mean, I can't even, I don't even know if I can do a sit-up anymore. All right? I mean, I, I, I don't know what's happening. Everything's expanding in my life. And, and my waistline keeps getting tighter. And, I, and I'm like, man, I want to get in shape. Wow, it's, I'm exhausted than watching the guy running down the street. I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> Just watching that guy sweat. I mean, it's hard disciplining ourselves. But spiritually is what he's talking about. These are spiritual disciplines, means by which we train ourselves to be more like Christ. Now, we can't become like Christ until we truly believe in him, place our faith in him, repent of our sins, turn to him. That means believing what he did on the cross for our sins, that he died in our place, and that he was buried, and he literally rose from the grave, and, and, and then he uh, walked among the people, I mean, even seen by 500 at one time. And then uh, it was 40 days after his resurrection that he ascends into heaven, and he will come again to set up his kingdom and to judge the living and the dead. And it will be, it'll be uh, I mean, it's a tremendous, tremendous thing. And now, after you come and place your faith in Christ, God gives him, gives you his Holy Spirit. He puts his spirit into you to help grow his, the Son of God in you that makes you more like Jesus. And we cooperate with that by, by disciplining ourselves for the sake of godliness. We're to be craving the Word of God, just as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, 3 says. I don't have it on the screen or a number. I'm just going to read it for you. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I see this all the time because I have a son who is, who is uh, breastfeeding. And my wife has been, we're working with him, giving him other food, and she gave him real milk the other day, and he took the little bottle, because <laughs> it's not the pure spiritual milk from his mother yet. He needs to grow. We need to grow into that. We can't handle that yet. We need to, to take the Word of God in its purity and reading it in bite-sized increments and reading it systematically to apply it to our lives. And we need to not just read the Word, but learn how to pray. And I know many of us, uh, I've talked to some of you, that you've never prayed out loud in your life. You are deathly terrified of it. That's the next step, possibly, for you. Praying in a group of people, whatever it might be. Maybe it's just taking time to pray by yourself, to communicate with God. 
Or maybe it's starting to fast. Or maybe it's taking that next step of, of baptism. Or, or that's not a discipline, but it's an act of obedience. And being part of a greater body and then giving of our, our resources. We're to train ourselves. Now, C.S. Lewis, he said this. He said, I want to add now that the next step is to make some serious attempt to practice Christian virtues, to apply these to our lives. He said, how long do we do that? A week is not enough. You can't just do it for one week and think everything's good. He, th- he said, things often go well for the first week. Try six weeks. By that time, you will discover some truths about yourself. I love this. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Have you experienced that in your life? You don't know how bad you really are until you really try to be good. He goes on. He says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After that, you find out, he says, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only complete realist. Now, what is he saying that for? He's saying that that if we try to live this life, we're going to find out how evil we really are. And that's why we need to add these disciplines to our life to help discipline and grow us. In essence, knock those dents out to help us conform to the image of Christ. So we commit ourselves to God and discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness and resist evil. It's easier said than done. That's what God desires from us, but there is more. Look at verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, we've already seen how this applies to character. But the idea of steadfastness is, and faithfulness also indicates not just to God, but to other people, which means fidelity in our relationships. Fidelity in our relationships with other people. I mean, we're great sometimes when we're talking about God until God gets really personal. But it's in our interactions with people, that's where we have a lot of problems. I mean, do you know someone that has a personality that you just can't stand? Think about the person that grates you the most. Hopefully I'm not that person. But think about that person. Or think about those you work with or those you go to school with or those in your family and those family reunions at that barbecue you don't want to go to because that certain family member is there. And think about having fidelity. What is, what is God's love? What does faithfulness and loyalty look like in those instances? What does it mean at our workplace? It means following through, keeping our word. And if we do fail, and we will, we ask for forgiveness. And and we listen. We listen. And I've learned you don't always just jump to asking forgiveness. You need to hear what it is that they're saying to you, which is also very hard to do. It can be very painful lessons. But here he's saying, let these guide you and guide your character, not just in your relationship with God, but in your relationship with other people. Now, look what happens if we do this. Verse 4. 
So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. You will find favor in the sight of all. You will find favor in the sight of all people. Now, does this mean you're not going to have problems? No. Does this mean that people aren't going to struggle with you? No. It's a general understanding, a principle, that when you're doing what God wants you to do, then people will see you as trustworthy. They will see you as a person of integrity. They will be more inclined to help you. They will be more disposed to to believe you and not be so skeptical towards you. Um, When we were redoing our lower level downstairs, we had had turned a paint closet into a check-in area. We were trying to find a countertop for it, and the guy who was working on it, Andy Besick, he knew of a countertop company in Batavia. He said, we can, they have scraps that are there, and we could use one of those. And I, and I said, well, what is it? He goes, well, it's granite. I said, there's no way that we can afford granite. We don't have any money for this. He said, well, let's just go over there and talk to them and see what happens. So we go over to this ca- tabletop, uh, countertop company, and they have these scraps out in the yard, and he pulls out a beautiful piece, and, and I'm like, there's no way that we can possibly afford this. And I, I was trying to ask the cost, and, and uh, he's like, don't worry about it. So we, we walk in, and we're talking to the owner, and I'm finding out that this piece is going to cost like some $500, if not more. And we don't have $500, not at all. And, I, and I'm sitting there just kind of shell-shocked, like, let's go out of here. Let's go someplace else. We can find something else. And, and, uh, and he's talking to this guy, and he goes, well, it's for a church check-in. And the guy stops in his tracks, turns and looks at us, and, and looks at me. And he goes, it's for a church? I said, yeah, it's for a church. He says, for a check-in. I said, yeah. He goes, I'm just going to charge you later. Here, take the piece. So he got this beautiful granite piece, and, and he was disposed to us because he was, he, he, we weren't trying to do it for anything selfish. We weren't trying to do it for anyone else except to serve people, and he recognized that, and he was disposed to help us. And I can tell you of countless stories of individuals that have had that happen. When they are living a life of integrity, they're going to find other people disposed to help them. Now, again, this is generally... I mean, it's not always going to work that way because we see within Scripture that if you're truly trying to follow Christ, that you will be persecuted. And there will be people that will misalign you. But generally, this is what occurs. You will find favor in the sight of all. Now let's get back to verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. See, God desires that we be trusting in Him in all circumstances. Trusting Him in all circumstances. See, the Father is telling His Son to trust in the one who gave Him these commandments, trust in them for His life. When He says, lean on in your own understanding, He he uses a word there of like leaning on a crutch when, when someone thinks hurt, something to depend on. Don't lean on your own understanding because it's weak. It's, it's finite. It, it fails. We need to lean and acknowledge God in all of our circumstances. Now, the word acknowledge here is better understood as recognizing his personal rights and authority. And it comes by experience, personal knowledge. And and this is the everyday reality of trusting in him. So it means trusting in him at all times, but it means having a relationship with Almighty God. It means trusting in Him in all circumstances, in the good and in the bad. And when I think of good and bad, I think of two characters in Scripture, Job and Joseph. Now here's Job, if you remember the story or you're familiar with it. This is the guy that's really blessed by God. He's got a huge family. He's got a great career, thriving business, health, and he loves God. But Satan, when he appears before God, God brings up Job. And then Satan says, the only reason he follows you is because you've blessed him. Take it away, and he's going to curse you to your face. 
And God says, I give you permission to, to assail him in essence, tempt him, to, or actually to wreak havoc against him. And he does. And the first thing he goes for is his family. That's interesting. Satan's still using the same tactic today. Can't get to you, he'll go after your family. And then he goes after his career. Takes that away. And then he goes after his personal health. That's what he goes after. But it's interesting. The scripture says that Job never sinned. I mean, he even said, though he slay me, I will yet trust in him. And his woman, his woman, his wife, excuse me. You know, I'm up here an hour a week. I'm bound to say something dumb. (laughs) So, his wife, I mean, it even says in the scripture that Job's breath was bad. I mean, that's bad. That's how bad as it can get. And he's got skin issues, his breath is bad, and his wife just says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And he says, you speak as a foolish woman. Now, I've repeated this to my wife. <laughs> Didn't go over very well. Huh? But he says, you speak of a foolish woman. Shall we accept the good from God and not the bad? And he holds on to his integrity, and God honors and blesses him for it. Think of Joseph. Joseph, this is a man that's a young man trying to follow God. He is, um, his brothers are jealous of his privileged position within the family. They betray him. I mean, they <laughs> get ready to kill him. Instead of killing him, they sell him into slavery. I mean, that's some serious brother I mean, sibling rivalry there. And he goes into slavery, and he works his way up to a privileged position within Potiphar's house. Then he's accused of rape, and he is then considered guilty, even though he did nothing. And then he goes to prison where he languishes for years. And then you look at this and you go, where is God in the midst of this? But God is with him in the midst of this. In the midst of his family deserting him. Even all this accusation and he's rotting in prison and he's done nothing wrong that he's still holding on to his integrity and following God and then God blesses him at the end of his life because of it. See, we're to hold and trust him in all circumstances. Now, we have a tendency to, to trust God when things are going great, but when it goes badly, we have a tendency to turn from God. This is where I, I love John Piper. Uh, used to be pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church. He's founded a ministry called Desiring God. In speaking against the prosperity gospel, he said this, Here is the reason the prosperity gospel is so horrible. When was the last time that any American, African, Asian, ever said Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW? Never. They'll say, did Jesus give you that? Yeah, well, I'll take Jesus. He says, that's idolatry. That's not the gospel. That's elevating the gifts above the giver. I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful. It's when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands dead on the street, and you say, through the deepest possible pain, God is enough. God is enough. He is good. He will take care of us. He will satisfy us. He will get us through this. He is our treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart and my little girl may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look glorious. It's trusting in God in the midst of the deepest struggles and trials. Trusting in God no matter what happens shows the depth and power of our faith and draws people to Christ in ways that otherwise would not have been possible. 
I know of so many individuals in the midst of unimaginable pain testified to God's greatness, and many came to see and know who Jesus is because of it. Now, when we are faced with circumstances beyond our ability seemingly to cope, we go back to the basics and remember to trust in the Lord that in that hard time. And that requires living by faith. It all comes back to that, doesn't it? Living by faith. Trusting in the Lord in difficult times. Joseph had to have faith. Job had to have faith that they would see God and God would right their situation. See, trusting in Him in all circumstances also means giving Him our future. Giving Him our future. It's amazing to me how fear influences us. See, when we're babies, we don't have much fear because we don't know much. I throw my little baby up in the air, and he just smiles and delights. I've shared this before, that now I throw my four-year-old son up in the air, and he just holds on because fear tells him that he can fall. Experience has taught him that. But somehow, there's something that happens in the midst of the teenage years that that fear, in all common sense, disappears. Usually, not all teenagers, but I'd say 99%. Um, no. Some, some, I, there are some teenagers that I have been very impressed with and what God is doing in their life. But when we are teens, we have a tendency to think that we are indestructible. Time passes, and we pass from the, child, the classroom of child naivete, where innocence is the teacher, to the classroom of youthful ignorance, where excitement is the teacher. Well, we love that class. It's a great class, and we are taught the world is like a garden of ripe fun, and our duty is to pick and eat of its fruit. But that class doesn't last for long. It cannot. See, the principle of the principle named age and the vice principle of ambition will not allow us to stay. After that, we graduate to the classroom of life where experience is the teacher. Now, experience is a brutal teacher, not allowing us to cheat or escape any lesson. Fear becomes an ever-present tutor, and experience will only allow us to graduate once we reacquaint ourselves with her. There becomes a sense of deep dread in our souls for the unknown that is coming as we get older, getting closer with each passing season, year, month, week, day, hour, and second. And for the unbeliever, there is a greater sense of approaching dark dread. I I heard of a man who just passed away after an illness, and it was horrific for him and his family. He would wake up in the night with such fearful nightmares and dreams because he was deeply afraid to die. He didn't have Christ. See, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in the middle of the 20th century in Philadelphia, he told the story of his first wife's passing and how death comes to the Christian. As he was driving home with his children from the funeral, one of his kids said, Daddy, I don't understand. Where did Mommy go? I don't understand what it means that she died. Barnhouse was trying to figure out how to explain death to his kids when just then, a truck passed by and cast a shadow over the car. He looked back at the kids and said, Kids, would you rather have been hit by the truck or hit by the shadow? Well, of course, they would have rather been hit by the shadow because the shadow doesn't hurt. It just darkens things for a moment. Then in his own wisdom, Barnhouse said these words, Kids, when you die without Christ, you're hit by the truck. When you die with Christ, you're only hit by the shadow. The shadow is all you get. That's a great picture great picture of death. So we have to understand that our understanding is limited. We can't see the things the way that God sees. No matter how much information we have, no matter how many webcams or cameras are out there that we can say things all over the world, 
we can never understand fully and see things the way that God does. Our vision is limited. And we have to understand that because of that limitation, that we are still to truly trust in Christ, then we have to recognize our finite nature. That our vision is limited. We can't see things the way that God does. If Going back to Job again. I mean, Job has these three counselors that tell him that he's in sin. That he's suffering because of sin in his life. And he's, he's struggling because he keeps justifying himself, saying, no, that's not the reason. And he has another one, another young man that joins in the conversation, and he's still just uttering senselessness and cliches. Finally, though, God shows up in Job chapter 38. I love that part where he says, Brace yourself like a man, and I will speak to you. And he goes starting to describe the foundations of the earth and how the entire world was created and how the rains came and how the sky was meant to be and all, all of these different things that are coming together in great mystery. And he says, You think you don't understand that? Or you understand what you're going through? Understand this. I mean, we're never going to understand fully the mind of God, and that will drive us nuts. But that's the mystery of God, that if, God were, if we were able to comprehend all of God, he wouldn't be God. He has to be beyond our, our understanding. Yet he still speaks to us in ways that we can grasp. We have to understand our finite nature. We also have to understand that there are results that happen by doing this. It means reaping his favor. Reaping his favor. See, when we acknowledge him in our everyday lives, he will make our paths straight and smooth. He will help us. He will smooth it out so we don't have as many troubles or difficulties, but that generally generally will help us in our time of need. Again, this doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer and we're not going to have tragedies enter into our lives. This is the understanding that generally he will be there guiding us through life. Now, I find our real struggle comes in the remaining verses of today's passage. Look at verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, I don't know about you, but has has someone ever showed you something and you're just nodding your head going, yeah, I'll do it that way, and they leave, you're not going to do it that way? You ever ever done that? Where you're like, okay, I'm going to, yeah, uh-huh, sure. No, you're, I'm, just go. And then you do it a different way. That's what I think many of us do with the, the Word of God. God speaks this truth into our life, and rather than apply it, then we say, you know what, God, I'm going to do my own thing. See, what we need to do is make sure that we are believing and following his counsel, this counsel that he gives to us. I mean, have you ever had someone give you counsel about a way that you were to proceed, or maybe it's about a job, or maybe it's something in your marriage, or at school, or in a relationship, or maybe it's a leadership opportunity, and that counsel ended up being bad? See, God's counsel from his word, when we apply it properly, will never, ever fail. And that means that we're not to look at the world only through our own eyes and our opinions. As best as we can, we trust and see things from God's perspective. And the world may not make sense a lot of times. There will be conflict, there will be misunderstanding, but don't let your limited perspective get in the way of God's perfect perspective. See, if we're to believe his counsel, then it involves us fostering humility. Fostering humility. That means that we have to say that there's a better authority than us. We have a tendency to see ourselves as our own walking movie. You ever had one of that? You walk around and you hear your voice talking about what's going on and the world's about you. It's not about you. It's about God. 
which means humbling ourselves and taking counsel from someone who is wiser, infinitely wiser, and trusting in him. We have to humble ourselves, not being wise in our own eyes. I mean, we have to understand how powerful God is, that he's so powerful that he could run the earth in two or into pieces and like that. He holds, I mean, you think about it. He holds this little ball called earth suspended in the middle of space, spinning around day after day when he could just flick it and be done. But he doesn't do that. He's good. And he loves us when we see how great and how awesome he is. Our only smart choice is to humble ourselves before him. And instead, we must make sure that we are fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. Notice that. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. It means honoring him reverently. Understanding how powerful he is. We forget that. We approach God so flippantly. Let me ask you this. Let's find ourselves up in the North Woods, or let's go up to Alaska, okay, where we had Christy was up there, and then Roy was up there too, doing ministry up there. You go up to Alaska, let's go out in the woods, and let's find a big, giant bear. Okay, now how are you going to approach the bear? I mean, and the bears are so cuddly. Maybe he'll let us pet it. Oh, look, it's a mama bear with her cubs. Let's pet them too. You're not going to do that, right? Why? Because that bear can destroy you. So you proceed cautiously. You back away. You know how powerful that being is. God is infinitely more powerful. We need to make sure that we are treating and honoring him reverently, giving him first place in our lives, reverence, honor, silence, and approaching him carefully. Notice also verse 7, and turn away from evil. If we're truly to trust in God and overcome our trust issues, then we must turn away from evil, which means that we're to be pursuing integrity. Pursuing integrity. It's rooted in character. It's moral uprightness. It means being the same person you are behind closed doors as you are in front of people. Now, where does this life lead? Look at verse 8. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The idea there that is conveyed, I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but it's the idea of all of your yourself will be thriving, will be renewed. So it's the idea of thriving holistically. Thriving holistically. And that means mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and even physically. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we're going to be having, uh, not going to have struggles and problems, but it's that generally speaking, we're going to be uh, thriving. We'll have peace with God, peace with others. We're not going to find ourselves in uh, suffering the consequences of sinful choices. We'll thrive holistically. Now, when we sin, we give in to what I call our dent of disobedience. It's like driving one of those crash-up derby cars at the fairgrounds. Anybody been to the fairgrounds and see those junkyard cars? They, they crash within one another. I mean, we already have dents, but we get more dents when we continue on in sin. And we, we have to understand and cannot, cannot minimize the effects of sin. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. And it doesn't mean that we aren't going to suffer the consequences of sins of others. But it means that we, as we continually go back to God, he keeps restoring us and pulling these dents out. Pulling these dents out. Now, if you're like me, trusting in him is easy to say when things are going well. And it's, it's the everyday moments that, we, that don't go the way we intended where we struggle. And I find the biggest area that's in is money. Money. And I find it divinely appointed that verse 9 is right there. Look at verse 9. Still talking about trust. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine, meaning that you will be prosperous. It means honoring him with your check. Are you honoring him with your check that you receive each month? 
for each couple weeks, how often you get paid. Are you honoring God with your wealth? Are you honoring him with your check? Now notice here, God gets the priority. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. It's honoring him. It's setting him. He is the priority. We're giving unto him. We have a tendency to make God secondary, third, if he's even on the, the, the list. Instead, most of us just give God scraps and we try to pacify him. But God must be the priority. And we must give him our prime. Our prime. It's the first fruits, the very best that we have. That means our time, our talent, our treasure. Giving our prime, just like a prime cut of steak. It's the best part of it. So we give him, make him a priority. We give him our prime. And our giving should be planned. Under the, 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 under the Lord with the wealth of your produce, it's the first fruits of your produce, meaning that you know that it's coming. You need to set it aside, that we should be giving frequently unto the Lord. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that they were setting aside money each week for God's glory. And your money, when you give, you're giving to help enable transformation to occur in individuals' lives. I mean, we've had stories of families coming in and needing uh, money for rent or their bills, and we can help that, or helping send people out into the mission field and hearing stories of people being transformed by, um, by in essence, your gift. It goes beyond transaction to transformation. Notice also that it's, the giving is personal, that you're to be, it's your wealth. You were to be giving it. Each was to set aside something for God We are to be the ones to give, not anyone else. And many of us have a hard time trusting in God for our money, but God is the one who has given us the ability to have and make wealth. We need to honor him with that wealth because that has a tendency. I mean, it does show where our heart is and what it is we really trust. When we say it's my money, we're showing that we don't trust God. We have to give God first place. And when we do, look at verse 10. And then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. See, when we honor God, it results in unbelievable prosperity. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to be rich. This doesn't mean you get your best life now. It means that you will flourish. That's what it means. See, there are many people and organizations that say, trust us. I mean, even with UCLA, at the beginning, here, they are the bastions of education, the temples of knowledge. They are the ones who educate and help transform our society the guardians of truth, supposedly. And yet they can make mistakes. I mean, we have different people, politicians, everyone saying trust us, but the only real trustworthy person is God himself. And he's given us his word to guide and direct us. And where's your trust? Who are you trusting in? Trusting in yourself? Trusting in your own abilities, your own reason, your own knowledge? You're trusting in what someone else has told you? The only trust worthy individual is God himself. Where is our trust? Do we believe in Christ? Is our trust in him, knowing that he died for you? The Bible is clear that we have to believe and receive God's gift of salvation. Trust in him. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you? Then you must receive him, as the Bible says in John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Just as I was telling you earlier about the Chicago Bears player who just did the free fall, and he fell flat, God will always catch you. He will always catch you. 
cast yourselves on him. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter if your back's been completely turned on God, that if you turn back to him, you will find loving arms that are there to receive you, that you can fall into his arms, knowing that he will remove your guilt and your shame, that he'll give you forgiveness, that he will lead you into all truth and life everlasting, and he will give you purpose and direction, and he will give you his Holy Spirit to help empower you to live the life that is pleasing and honoring in his sight, that your name, or that his name might radiate through you, and you will do good works for his name, because he has designed and made you to be the poem and portrait that other people would see and read the glories of his grace in your life. Have you placed your faith in him? You must repent and believe. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Call on him and he will save you. Fall in his arms and he will catch you. Let's pray. Our Father, we come into your presence again. We have many trust issues. There's so many people that we don't trust, situations, whether it's our employers, whether it's our children, whether it's our our parents, whether it's uh, leaders that we've encountered in our life, whether it's the the person at the checkout or uh, the bank, or wherever it is, we have a hard time trusting people. But Lord, we know that we can trust in you, that you will always receive us, you won't forsake us, you won't drop us, that you'll hold on to us, keep us safe, and that you will give us life and direction and purpose and power to live the life that you desire us to have. And most of all, you will grant us peace. So, Lord, we give ourselves unto you, knowing that we have our trust issues, but we, we, tr- we want to trust in you with all of our heart, leaning not on our own understanding, but on all of our ways, acknowledging you, knowing that you will make our path straight. So, Lord, glorify yourself in our midst as we each go our separate ways today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.